Good morning. My name's Greg. I don't know if you have how good your vision is, but it says Greg on there. <laughs> this morning we are starting a series that is a brainchild of your pastoral staff called You Asked For It, which was essentially them giving the congregation a questionnaire of what are some things that we haven't preached on recently that you think we should preach on. And uh, you gave us some pretty tough suggestions, but we asked for it, so we're going to do that. But in this moment uh, right now, in this season, there's just a lot going on. Um, Obviously, next week is Impact Weekend for our church and our community. Uh, There is the uh, National Day of Prayer Breakfast. There is, uh, I can tell you personally, I've got three major things. Uh, We're uh, launching a a podcast that starts in two weeks. Um, Draw has its biggest fundraiser of the year a month from today, and we have to raise a certain amount of money, I think 40 grand this year, or else we have to raise more later. Um, And then Draw is also opening a new cafe, coffee shop, uh, near the end of August, and so there's tons of paperwork for that. Uh, in your lives, I'm sure there are open houses and graduations and vacations to plan, and just in this moment, it feels like there's a lot, and it's hard for me to focus. This morning, I was supposed to preach, and I, gotta, I like to get up early and when I'm preaching and really go through things, and my brain just wouldn't shut down. So if only for me, maybe for you, could we take a 30 seconds and just have a, a, a prayer just to, just to quiet our hearts, quiet our minds. You pray to God for whatever you need, um, and then we will get into the word. How does that sound? You guys good with that? All right, let's be quiet. Let's pray. God, quiet our minds. Give us ears to hear what you would have to say to us today. We ask in your name. Amen. It's 9.42. I'm going to do my best to get you out of here before noon. (laughs) I've got six stories this morning that I want to talk about. Just six. Pastor Greg was like, is that going to be an hour apiece? I'm like, no, no, no. I'll just be quick in and out. Six stories and we'll be done. Story number one, I've never been a guy who's been into my own ancestry. When people would say I'm part Asian, part German, part whatever, I'd be like, I'm part something. I don't know exactly. I'm very white, obviously. So um, that narrows it down a little bit. But I never, did, and I don't want to spit in the container and send it in. I don't know if you guys know about th- these things these days where you can spit in a container and send it in and they can tell you that you're like 3%, you know, African or what. In, and I, so I don't want to do that, but I just didn't know a ton about my ancestry. And, and uh, recently I found something out that spurred my interest. And so then I really started to study and I kind of learned about some of the people that are in my, that are generations before me. Um, I'm part English. I know that's crazy. Uh, it's hard to believe. But uh, I had ancestors that actually lived uh, according to uh, the stories that I read and was told, lived next door to William Shakespeare in England, in Stratford. So um, we always have had an inferiority complex in our household. Um, 
a couple generations after Shakespeare, after the Shakespeare neighbors, I had uh, some ancestors in the early 1800s, 18, yeah, early 1800s, that lived about what is now about an hour and a half south of Chicago on a ranch. Their names were William and Polly. And I read that William and Polly had a son, James, and the three of them on their ranch used it as a location along the Underground Railroad. That, that slaves that were seeking freedom, uh, escaping from uh, their owners, would stop and be given shelter at the ranch. And then would help escort them to the next stop along the Underground Railroad. Which I was like, wow, that is... It's pretty cool. And then you would read stories uh, on there of how bounty hunters from the south would be coming after these slaves, these escaped slaves. And, and uh, it turned out that my ancestors were actually in, in a significant amount of danger pretty regularly. William and Polly and then their son James. Their son was uh, James Butler. Uh, my mom's last name is Hickok. His name was Hickok. And uh, in the mid-1800s, uh, James went on to um, then go to Kansas and be a part of uh, the free state uh, militia. You know, Missouri was a slave state, and Kansas had just been opened uh, as a colony by the United States, and Missouri wanted to make sure that Kansas would be a slave state because they didn't want all of their slaves to just cross the border. And so um, there was a significant battle there for that, and James Butler uh, joined the free state militia to help in Kansas uh, to keep it a free state. Later on, James Butler became a spy for the Union in the Civil War. Um, You may have heard of James Butler Hickok, but you don't know him by that name. His name, uh, later on, he came to be known as Wild Bill Hickok. Has anybody heard of Wild Bill Hickok here? He's in my lineage. How crazy. How wild. Uh, Wild Bill Hickok was generations before me. And I learned that he was killed at 39 playing poker. And I turned 39 in a couple weeks. So I'm not playing poker next year. Um, But I do know that after being a part of the Free State Militia in Kansas, he uh, wanted to be in the cavalry. But um, he was too tall. And so instead, he became a stagecoach driver uh, and would go back and forth from Kansas to New Mexico. And uh, he would drive the stagecoach. Now, there's a story, uh, if you know anything about Wild Bill. On the stagecoach, he's heading out to New Mexico, and there's a story where uh, he comes up across a bear cub on the trail. And so he gets out of his stagecoach, and when he gets out of his stagecoach, he realizes immediately he's made a terrible decision because the mama bear is off in the bushes and comes charging him from the bushes. Now, if you know anything about Wild Bill, he was one of notoriously the best shots in the Wild West, and he pulls out his six-shooter, and he shoots the mama bear in the head. And you would think, that's it. Except that the bullet ricocheted off the bear's head. How does that happen? It, It literally ricocheted, and the bear mauled Wild Bill Hickok. And in the middle of the mauling, uh, Wild Bill was able to get his gun and sh- get one more shot off, and he shot the bear in the paw. So the bear rolls off, and then he then grabs his knife and kills the bear. But in the midst, he crushed his shoulder, his vertebrae, his ribs, and he was bedridden uh, along the trail for four months. 
before he became to, came to full recovery. But I think back to that moment, like, what must he have been thinking, one, when he gets out of the stagecoach and he sees the mama bear come at him, and two, when he gets the shot off and the bear just keeps coming, like, that's not what was supposed to happen. I shot it in the head, and it just kept coming at me. And I sometimes can relate in life when there is something coming at me, and I do what I think is right, and even in the midst of me doing what I, would protect me or save me or what is right, like, stuff just keeps coming. And I'm in pain. And that's what Wild Bill dealt with along the trail. I told that story mostly just to brag that I'm related to Wild Bill. However, I did get that lesson out of it, which brings me to story number two. In the New Testament, there are four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the synoptic Gospels. Sin sin is short for synonym, so meaning the same, and optic meaning look. So they look the same. That's why they call it the synoptic Gospels. They're all written kind of the same. If you read Matthew and Mark and Luke, they all start with a genealogy. They all start with the basic story of the birth of Christ. A lot of the stories in those three Gospels are the same. So you might read a story in Luke and go, didn't I read this somewhere else? And it's in Matthew. So there's, there's a lot of crossover. But when they wrote these Gospels, these first-hand accounts of Jesus, John wrote his much later than everybody else's. In some cases, 20 to 30 years later than these other Gospels. John was the youngest disciple, and so he lived longer. And when he went to write his Gospel, it was like he looked at the synoptics. He looked at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and he went, Nah, I gotta tell it different. I can't, mine can't be like theirs. I got to tell it a different way. And so if you read through the Gospel of John, you get a lot more like relationship stories. John is the Gospel where you get the, the story of Jesus interacting with the woman at the well. John is the Gospel where you get the story of Jesus interacting with the man who was born blind. John was the Gospel where he talked to Nicodemus for an entire chapter, this whole conversation. In John is the gospel where we find this story, this relationship story. I'll start in verse 35. The next day, John was there with two of his disciples. Quick aside, John here is referring to John the Baptist. So John the Baptist is the prophet who goes before Jesus that foretells the fact that the Messiah is coming. And so he, he has people who follow him, disciples. And so this is John the Baptist. The next day, John was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. John the Baptist identifies the Messiah to his disciples. like, uh, this is what I've been talking about right here. Verse 37, when the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, what do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Like, this guy's the Messiah. Let's figure out what's going on here. I want to I see what's going on. He says, come, he pr- replied, and you will see. He doesn't answer the question. He just says, let's, let's go. You're with me now. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent the day with him. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard that John had said and who had followed Jesus. The first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him, we have found the Messiah. And he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which 
when translated, is Peter. And so Andrew is sent along by John the Baptist. There's the Messiah. You follow him. And Andrew goes and he spends a day with them. And he's like, I got to get my brother. This is crazy. Like this is the Messiah, the one that's been foretold for centuries. I got to. And so he goes, get, goes and gets his brother, Simon. Brings Simon along. And the moment that Simon shows up, Jesus looks at him and says, Oh, I know you, but you're not going to be Simon anymore. You're going to be Peter. He changes his name. The first thing Jesus does when he meets Peter is he changes his name. What's going on there? Story number three. I know I don't look like it, but once upon a time, I was a cross-country runner in high school. And at the time, I didn't look like it either. It was funny because I was a wrestler who was getting ready, getting ready for wrestling season. So I would run cross-country as a way to train for wrestling season. So the cross-country team, if you would see them running, would be like six string bean, tiny, skinny, long, tall dudes and one short, stocky guy who runs like he's angry at the ground. <laughs> that was our team. And they were all pretty fast. And I, I mean, my le- their legs were twice as long as mine. So I'm, I, know, I feel like I got way more steps in than they did. And I wasn't very good, and I didn't really take it that seriously. Our, our cross-country team was one where uh, we would go to a tournament ahead of time, and we would draw chalk outlines of people on the course, just so that people are running, and they're like, wait, what's going on there? My coach hated it. I would always bring the aerobi, which is, if you're familiar with the aerobi, the frisbee, that's a ring that you can throw 100 yards. He got so mad when we would play with the aerobi. I'm like, we're running, what? Uh, we had a lot of fun. And uh, it was a good thing we had a lot of fun because it's not like I brought anything else to the team. My PR was somewhere in the neighborhood of like 1945. And just for context, the fastest I ever ran uh, a 5K my senior year, 1945, right before the race, I had two Snickers because I was hungry. So I had a really strict training regimen that I went through when I ran. But I was not fast. There were other guys in the team that were fast. And so we came to our regional tournament. Now, when you're at regionals in high school and cross country, the only way to make it to the state tournament is either to qualify individually, which means being very fast, so that eliminates me right there, or if your team uh, collectively had got within a certain amount. So everybody got, you know, like second place, seventh place. Like you add up all the places and then a certain amount of teams would go to the state tournament. Now, on my team, you only count the first five. On my team, I was number six. So it's not like I mattered anyway. But it was my last race. And I enjoyed the time that I did cross country. And I remember the race was at Imlay City Golf Course. I don't know if it's called that. But it was at a golf course in Imlay City. The other thing about cross country in Michigan is the end of the season is November, which is not exactly running weather, if you're familiar with running. It was chilly and it had rained a lot the night before. And so we get to the Imlay City Golf Course and it's cold and it's very wet. And so they shoot the gun off, and I'm ready to run the last race of my high school career. And I'm running in the pack. I mean, there's, there's 30-some teams there. And so, like, when you get off the line, you're, you're kind of, like, running and not touching. Sorry, I didn't mean to touch you. You know, like, you're very, especially when you're as slow as me. All of us slow guys stick together in a big clump. And, so, and I'm, I was a shorter guy, so I couldn't really see. I'm just, like, I'm running with the crowd. And on this race course, about a quarter mile in, we run down this hill. And at the bottom of this hill, there had been so much rain that this, I don't know what it was, I think it was just a dirt area, but it became a, like a very muddy, muddy area. 
And so you're running, and I was running in it, and I step in it, and, and um, cross-country cleats back then were very tiny. I stepped in it, and it was like the mud like grabbed my foot, and when I stepped out of it, I stepped out of my shoe. So like basically the mud just grabbed my shoe, and I'm running, and but I'm in, in the middle of a race. I'm not going to be like, excuse me, can we time out? Time out? I can't call time out in cross-country. That's not allowed. And so I had two choices. I can go back and get my shoe, or I could just run. So I just ran with one shoe on. And I started to notice, like, later on in that, like, you know, 100 yards down the way, people are lining the race course, and they're like, they're pointing, like, what's going on over there, you know? And I'm just, all right, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna finish this. This is a, this will be a fun story to finish my high school racing career. And I get to the one mile mark, and uh, our coach is there with his little stopwatch. He's listing, all right, 512, 513. He's like telling you your time at the one mile mark. And, and he's telling everybody his time. And, he's, and then the manager of the team is holding my shoe. And he's like, Greg, is that your shoe? And I'm running. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, don't talk to me when I'm running. I'm out of breath, you know. Some runners like running together. Like they run in packs. They get together on a Saturday morning. And it's like a group exercise. If I'm running, don't talk to me. I have my earbuds in for a reason. I don't want to talk to you, Okay. And so he's like, do you have, uh, is this your shoe? Yeah, yeah. He's like, do you want to put, and I, no, no. I mean, I'm not making full sentences. And so I keep running. And there's another part in the course where we run along some brush. It's like kind of the woods where like on the golf course, you would, it would be out of bounds, which is where most of my drives end up when I golf. And so I'm running there and whoever, you know, you're in a line, whoever's in front of me must have caught like the branch because the branch, like it bent and then he lets go and it swings back. But it was right about here, so it swung back, and all of a sudden I looked down, and I am bleeding from this thigh. Just it's just coming down. I'm the same leg. I'm like the sock was gross at the end. It was the same leg that I didn't have my shoe on, and so I'm running, and I get to the two mile mark, and my coach is there. He's doing it. All right, twelve thirty three, twelve thirty four. Greg, what the heck? You know, like what's going on with you? Yeah, you're losing your shoe. You're bleeding like crazy. You need to stop. I'm fine. I'm fine. And then somewhere around the three, you know, just after the two-mile mark, something clicked in my head. And I realized this is the last race of my high school career. This is it. I got I to gotta, I gotta leave it all on the field, as the coach says. And when you run, a lot of times when someone's in front of you, you kind of like, you, you peg them in your head. You're like, I'm going to go catch that person. And then you run and you catch them. And then you go, okay, I'm going to catch the next person. Typically, I was the guy that other people pegged. In this race, with a mile left, I'm like, this is, this is all I have left. I might as well kick it into gear. And so somewhere around 2.2 miles, I just started sprinting. I lost my mind. But I just was like, all right, here we go. And so I sprinted. There was a guy in front of me. I pegged him. And, I ca- and then the next guy in my head, I'm like, I'm going him. And I'm sprint Like, I'm the short guy, angry at the ground, sprinting. And, and the guys running are like, what's wrong with this guy? But I just kept sprinting. And I got about a half mile into the sprint. I'm like, my side really hurts. This is, this is why I don't normally run this fast. Ah, am I close? And I can't even see the finish line. But I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish. And so I just keep sprinting. And I'm pegging people and pegging people. And it's funny because in, on our team, there were five guys that would always be in front of me. Like, they always had better times than me. And I passed one of them. And he's like, Greg, what the? What kind of? And then I passed another guy on my, on my team. And he's like, What's going on? I'm just, and, I, and I'm sprinting to the end. I look at the end, and there's a guy that's like halfway. There's probably 100 yards left, and he's 50 yards from the 
the finish line and I'm 100 yards and I'm like, I'm catching. And I, and I just like, my last little tiny bit of energy, I sprint and I catch him right before the finish line and I cross the finish line and my time was 17.42. It's two minutes faster than I'd ever run in my life. The coach is at the finish line like, did you cheat? Did you skip part of the race? What is wrong with you? But there I am. I've got this giant pain in my side. I'm like, just stop talking to me. And, I'm, and, and I need gauze. I have to like wrap a thing around me and my sock is just done. You know, like one of those socks, you're like, this isn't even a rag anymore. This is just garbage. And I think of that race constantly because the thing about racing is that you just have to keep going. You, you have a pain in your, in your leg, you have to keep going. But it doesn't mean it doesn't stay with you. You get to the three mile mark and you got to pee, you got to keep going. Some marathoners we know, they get near the end and they have to go. And we've seen pictures that are disturbing. <laughs> but they just have to keep going. Now, all those things, they stay with you. That pain in my side stayed with me for like four days. It was terrible. I, had a, I, had a, I still have a tiny little scar right here on my, on my thigh. The sock was ruined. The bottom of my foot, it was so cold, I could barely feel the bottom of my foot. I'm like, am I a peg leg? What's happening right now? Sometimes when you're going in life, things happen to you, and you just have to keep going, even though these things stay with you. You think, I can move past it, but it stays with you. And you just can't keep, you can't seem to shake it, no matter how hard you try. Story number four. In Genesis chapter 15, God promises to Abraham that I will make out of you and out of your descendants a great nation. And at the time, I'm sorry, he promised Abram. I ruined the ending right there. He promised Abram, I will make out of you a great nation. And Abram says to God, I'm 86 years old, man. And my wife isn't much younger. I don't, we don't have any kids. I don't see how this is going to happen. And so Abram on his own, in consultation with his wife, Sarah, says, let's see if we can get our servant, Hagar, and you have a baby with her, and then we'll have a kid. Seems reasonable, right? And he has this child, Ishmael, and Ishmael became a giant wedge between Abram, Sarah, and Hagar, to the point that Sarah finally banished them from the camp that Abram and Sarah lived in. And God came down and, and he gave a blessing to Hagar and Ishmael. And it was obviously not God's plan. And then later on, so the very next chapter, chapter 17, after Hagar and Ishmael, it says, uh, verse 3, Abram fell face down before God. And God said to him, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. God's promise was still there. And even after the mistake that Abram made, he came back and said, my promise is still here. In fact, my promise is still here, but you have a different future. So your name is no longer Abram. It's Abraham. God changed Abram's name. The interesting thing, I said this to Pastor Craig this morning, I never caught this till just now. Abram was 86 when he had Hagar, or he had the, the baby with Hagar, Ishmael. 
When God comes to him in chapter 17, it says that Abram is 99 years old. So between the time where Abram did the wrong thing and God came back and made the same promise was 13 years. I know in our Bibles it seems like it's the next chapter, so just the next thing. But in real time, it was 13 years that Abram had to live with the mistake that he had made. Have you ever had to make a mistake that has just stayed with you? You, you had a decision to make and you knew it probably wasn't the best thing, but at the time it seemed like the best thing. And then this thing has just lingered and you've had to live with the consequences day after day, week after week, year after year. It just stays with you. Just like in the race, you, I lost my shoe and just, I just had to keep going, but I didn't have a shoe. Abram had this child outside of the will of God and he just had to live with it. What were, there, what were those 13 years like? Maybe we know. Maybe you've lived with something for 13 years and you're like, I know what it's like. It's my own personal hell. I just have to live with it. I know the mistake I made and I see it all the time. Maybe it was a financial investment. Maybe it was a relationship. Maybe it was something you said to a loved one that's just stuck. Maybe it was a career decision where you threw somebody under the bus and, they, and you now see that person all the time and it's a constant reminder of what you did or what you said. Whatever it is, it sticks with you. You tried to skirt the will of God and it stayed And you live with that consequence every day. We know what Abram was going through. We've all had to live with that. Story number five. Later on in Genesis, there is a guy, Jacob. Perhaps you're familiar. He had a brother named Esau. He stole from his dad. He stole from his brother. And then he bolted. And he bolted and went to another town. And he stayed in another town... And there, he wanted to marry a woman. But in the haste of marrying that woman, he was forced to marry her sister instead. And then he was supposed to re-meet up with his brother, and he, he ghosted his brother. He just didn't show. He sent everybody else but him. In the midst of that, he has a dream where he encounters God, and God says to do a certain thing, and he wrestles with God, and he's, he's stubborn. And he does this, this is the, almost the entirety of his life. And near the end of Jacob's life, in chapter 35, he comes before God. And there's a funeral, and at that funeral, it says that, at verse 9, after Jacob returned from Padanaram, God appeared to him again and blessed him. And God said to him, your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name will be Israel. And so he named him Israel. Even near the end of his, after he had lived through so many things and made so many mistakes, God went to Jacob and he said, you're not Jacob anymore. You will be called Israel. He changed his name. He gave him a new name. He went from Jacob to Israel. Just like before with Abram. He went from Abram to Abraham. Even though Abram had lived through so much and had done the exact opposite of the will of God, God came back to him and said, I don't see you as Abram anymore. I see you as Abraham. God goes to Jacob after so many mistakes 
after so many flaws, and he says, I don't see you as Jacob anymore. I see you as Israel. And then in the story that we heard, the second story, number two, Andrew goes and gets his brother Simon and brings Simon to Jesus. And Jesus looks at Simon and he says, you're not Simon anymore. Whatever you've done, that's gone. You are Peter. You're the rock. You're Cephas. He changes his name. Why does God keep changing people's names? It's so confusing. I put my name on the name tag. That's it. Like, why do I got to change it now? Abram to Abraham after mistakes. Jacob to Israel after mistakes. Simon to Peter after mistakes. Story number six. In 2011, I took a young adult group to to downtown Washington, D.C. We worked at a homeless shelter where the shelter had just bought uh, an abandoned or uh, an old apartment complex that they were going to have us renovate so that way they could have more beds for homeless to, uh, to stay in. And so we worked there. And while we were there, we said we wanted to worship in town. And there was a church a quarter mile away from us that everybody said, this is a great church. You should check it out. Spirit of Faith Christian Center, I believe is what it's called. Don't quote me on that. But it's in downtown Washington, D.C. And so we walked a quarter mile from where we stayed to this church. And when we walked in, it was like a, it was like a, what do you, what do you call it? A, a strip mall. It didn't look like a church. It looked like a, a big lots and a, a dollar tree. That's what it looked like. And we walked in and the place was kind of pristine. We're like, whoa. And the, uh, the ushers wore white gloves. I, which was very over the top. I'm like, I'm not dressed appropriately. I'm wearing a t-shirt here. Just... And when we walked in with 13 of us, the usher said, uh, how many do you have? We said 13. They said, okay, follow us. I'm like, why can't we just sit where we want? And they usher, ushered us all the way to the front, like right there. And we were like, ah, we're... And, and let's state the obvious. 13 of us were white. And I think we were 13 to 15 white people in the whole place. We stuck out a little bit. And they sat us right in the front. And we're like, well, why can't we sit in the Nobody else is here. Why can't we just sit in the back? And the service started going. And five minutes in the service, we realized why we couldn't sit in the back because the place was packed. They needed to like cram everybody in. So I don't know if this should be a new thing here at Clarkson Community, but like maybe the usher should just make you sit in service. Everybody comes right up front, catching my spit. It's great. We were there for an hour and a half before anybody even started talking because it was just music. There was a choir. There was a, a sweet band. The bass player was killing it. Uh, and, and there was a soloist. And we were singing. And the whole place was grooving. And there was uh, some announcements. And before the preacher ever got up on uh, to preach, it had been two hours. This is a long service. I'm just trying to set the stage. If this is long, don't complain. So it is a long service. Now on that day, there was a guest preacher. Isn't that the worst there was a guest preacher at this service. Oh. And so this guest preacher was this reformed gang member. This guy who was a gang member in Washington, D.C., had served time, had given his life to Jesus in prison, came out, started speaking, started uh, getting involved in different missions around town, and he was rough. I mean, he spoke like an ex-gang member that had served time. And he was passionate. I mean, he was, he was not honed. He didn't go to, like, theology school to make these, like, great, amazing presentations like you get from Pastor Greg every, every Sunday. It was more like just this, like, guttural, like, oh, like, 
I agree with you, but man, take it down a notch. Like, that's how you felt the whole time. And at one point, he was talking about children. And I don't remember how he got there, but I'm sitting in this full congregation, probably 1,300 people in there. And he said, uh, and he's talking about children. And, th- and it got weird. He said, there are people in this sanctuary who have terminated a pregnancy. And all of us, I mean, the white people in the room, I'm like, this was, uh, where, what are you doing, dude? That's how we felt. And he said, I'll tell you what. If you are female in this room and you've terminated pe- pregnancy, he doesn't say this as softly as I'm saying it now. If you're female in this room, terminated pregnancy, we'd like you to have you come down to the altar right now. Holy cow. And I was like, my initial thought was, this is going to be so uncomfortable when no one does this. But what was even crazier was dozens of women got up from their seats and came down to the altar. And then he followed up. As soon as they got there, he said, now, the fellows are just as responsible for this. If you've been a part of a relationship where a, a pregnancy was terminated, I want you to come down to the altar. And I'm even more uncomfortable. I mean, we're two, uh, two hours, 45 minutes in, and another few dozen dudes get up, and they come down. And it's this moment, I will always remember this moment of like, I don't know if I'm okay with what's going on here. Like, I just felt very, very uncomfortable. And he got there, and this guy, and the way that he was speaking, it wasn't just that he did this, it was like, the way he was speaking, I'm like, this is not ha- being handled well. Like, I just, it didn't feel right. You're putting people on the spot, I just, and everybody gets there. And this guy, for the first time in his entire sermon, softens his tone. And he kind of puts his hands on his knees, and he says to the people that are down front, he says, look, I can't imagine what you've been going through. I can't imagine the circumstance that you lived through that made you come to this decision. The heartbreaks that happened, the things that made it hard, where you felt like you had no way out, where this was your only choice. And I can't imagine what's happened since then and what you've been carrying. Whether, you, whether, whether you're pro-life or pro-choice, that's a serious moment that you go through and it has ramifications. And these people are there and he says, I can't imagine what you've had to carry every day. Fellas, I can't imagine what you've, the regrets you might have as they sat there. And he said, but I want to tell you this and I'm here to tell you this. In our Savior Jesus Christ, there is therefore no longer any condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. You are free. You don't have to carry that guilt one more day. Those thoughts, those regrets, those things that you've been carrying in your heart since you made this decision, you can shed that right now. Jesus died on the cross so that you don't have to carry your guilt one more second. That if you give it to him and you ask for forgiveness, he has made you free. Children, be free. I'll never read that scripture the same way again. There is no longer any condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Whatever guilt that you've been carrying, 
Whatever that decision is that you made, that you think about at night when you put your head on the pillow, those ramifications that have stayed with you, those ramifications are real. But you don't have to carry it on your back one more day. You are not guilty. You are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. You are free. And if you don't think, if you've you've given that to God and you still feel like you're living with guilt, let me say this to you. You're not looking at yourself through God's eyes. You're seeing yourself through your own eyes. But God looks down at you through Jesus Christ and he says, you're not Abram anymore. You're Abraham. I've got something new and better for you. You're not Jacob. I know you've made mistakes, but I don't see you as Jacob. I see you as Israel. And there is a new future for you. There is a new beginning for you. You are not Simon anymore. You don't just fish. You will be a fisher of men. I have a new plan for you. And I'm giving you a new name. And whatever you've been carrying, whatever baggage came with that old name, it's done. That is on the cross. And so today, when we asked you, what do you want to hear on? And in the, what you asked for it, you said, how do I deal with guilt? You give it to God. You give it to Jesus. And listen to him when he says, you have a new name. You are free. You don't have to carry it. I don't know what that thing is with you. Is it a relationship? Is it your work? Is it a thing that impacts you every day that you regret? Those regrets are gone. You have a new name. I have a name tag here, and it says Greg. But to God, I'm not just Greg. He's given me a new purpose. He's called me to a new thing. And if I accept that, I can leave that on the cross. And so today, this morning... Somebody asked for it. If you're in here today, you may have asked, what do I do with this guilt? This morning, I wanted to ask you to do this. I want you to take your old name. Mine says, my name is Greg. I want you to leave it. Because Jesus has a new thing for you. He's given you a new name, a new purpose, a new life. If you're living under the burden and bondage of guilt... Listen to our God say to you, you don't have to live one more second under that. There is no longer any condemnation. You are free. So we'll ask the band to come up and we'll end with a song. And if there's a time where you need to talk to Jesus and you want to leave your name, your old name, you can leave it on the altar. You can leave it in the pew. Leave it where you have to leave it. But know that in in Christ, there is no more condemnation. You are free. Praise Jesus. Let's pray. God, thank you for the freedom you've given us. For the promise that you have a new future for us. And Lord, we confess that if we have messed up your plan over and over and you just keep redeeming it, So Lord, may we see ourselves through your eyes. May we see ourselves the way you see us. May our lives be a life where people look and say, oh, they're living free. May we not carry any burdens that you don't intend for us to carry. Thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for our new life. Thank you for our new name. Amen.